Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namihelps.org. Hi, I'm Kay King. I'm a community educator for eight years for NAMI Minnesota. I'm a family member who was born to a mother who lived with mental illness, and my only sibling lives with bipolar disorder. I hope you can join us for Get to Know NAMI. It's a session where we talk about education, support, and advocacy at NAMI Minnesota. At the session, you'll have a chance to learn about classes and programs that we provide. You'll have a chance to hear about our support groups and our helpline. You'll also have a chance to hear a little bit about the legislative policy, first-person language, and other advocacy programs that we offer. We have daytime and evening sessions available, one hour in length. Please go to our NAMI Minnesota website, namihelps.org, to see locations, times, and dates of our programs. Hope you'll join us. Hi, this is Brian Jost with NAMI Minnesota. This episode is a recording of a presentation that was the first part of a four-part wellness series organized by NAMI Minnesota. It was recorded at the Rondo Community Library in St. Paul on January 18th, 2018. It was open to the public and there were audience questions, but we did not record those. So I'm going to fill in those questions so it makes sense when you hear the answers from the presenter. And the next person you're about to hear is Kat from NAMI, Minnesota, introducing the presenter. Good afternoon. Thank you guys for coming. Um, I'm super excited to be here with you guys. We are doing our very first wellness series. So if you registered online, you probably saw that there's a few additional ones with different topics tied to mental health. So we're super excited here. We have an amazing sleep health specialist who is going to be talking about sleep health today. Um, I just want to point out a few things before we get started. There are snacks on the table. Feel free to munch as we go. We have a bunch of resources here at the end um, that please take a look at. We have other events in Ramsey County as well as additional ones um, from NIM. Uh, regarding different mental illnesses and information that way. Uh, me and Haley, as well as Brian, are all NAMI employees. So if there's any questions that you have or things that we can do, we're also going to be available here at the end. With that, I'll just pass it over to Sarah and have her introduce herself and be able to get the ball rolling. Awesome, thanks guys. Hi, I am Sarah Moe, uh, and that RPSGT after my name stands for Registered Polysomnographic Technologist, which just means I'm a sleep specialist and I went to school for it on purpose. It's pretty cool. Um, I'm also on the board of directors of the Minnesota Sleep Society as well as the Educational Products Committee for the American Association of Sleep Technologists. So I'm super cool, I promise you. <laughs> I started my career in sleep medicine over 10 years ago and I worked overnights doing sleep studies and diagnosing sleep disorders. I'm also an adjunct professor at MCTC where I teach sleep medicine. So I've been at this a long time. I'm not telling you this to make myself sound cool because I understand it doesn't make me look cool at all, but I just kind of want you to know that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to sleep. So now you've got a friend in me if you have issues. So my cards are over there as well uh, with my email address and my cell phone number. If you have some personal sleep concerns that you don't feel like sharing with the group at the end of the day, I'd be happy to answer your questions. So we'll get started here. Sleep medicine is really cool and it's only kind of a recent thing. These last 30 years have been amazing with research and development as far as sleep goes, uh, but it's still a pretty young field as far as medical fields go. Uh, it's it has really just been 30, about 30 years since we've been able to use sleep um, and the research and the science behind it to help people feel better. Uh, back in the day, 
Salem witch trials are interesting because they've been researched recently as far as parasomnias go, which are movement disorders of sleep. And reading the accounts of the witch trials, they're, they're seeing that they think a lot of the women who were accused were actually suffering from sleep disorders, from parasomnias. So uh, we're in the right place at the right time as far as sleep goes. But we, we still really don't know why we sleep, which is interesting. Uh, there are a lot of different theories the more popular ones being the restorative theories and uh, actually there's an interesting hibernation theory that we'll talk more about lately but ultimately we still are having a difficult time even defining sleep for example this is the actual definition of sleep in the dictionary right now spoiler alert it's really bad <laughs> number one the natural periodic suspension of consciousness there's four parts part two a state resembling sleep I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to use the the word you're trying to define in the definition. Part three, a period, there it is again, spent sleeping. This is how they're defining sleep. And part four, crusty matter present in the corner of your eye. <laughs> they're the, the crusty, it appears. So we still have a long way to go, but luckily we've, we've gotten pretty far recently. And the, the reason that we're finally putting the time and the money and the effort into understanding sleep is because we've realized it affects every aspect of our life. There's no part of your waking day that your sleep doesn't impact. Uh, your productivity. Think about how difficult it is for you to do things when you're, when you're tired versus when you're well rested. Memory, we've now discovered that memories are consolidated during sleep and we can prove it scientifically. Physical abilities, uh, just becoming more clumsy when you're not well rested. Judgment, uh, how many times have you had to apologize for something you said when you were really tired? Motivation and your mood. Nobody says they're happier when they're tired versus well rested. But most importantly, our health and our well-being. It affects every aspect of our well-being, how well we sleep. Uh, we have the physical aspect, social, emotional is missing, and mental. Our mental well-being is so closely tied to our sleep. It's actually one of the reasons that torture is one of, or sleep de deprivation is one of the most effective forms of torture. It's used because, well, you know those days that you are very tired and you, you really just can't do anything. We're not supposed to have those days. So it's great that the research is getting us to a point where we don't have to anymore. Another cool thing about sleep medicine is that it does kind of tie us all together. It's a, a unifying thing. It's something that we all do. As far as wellness goes, we do, some of us do yoga, some of us eat very well, you know, and some of us want no part in that and that's fine. I'm one of them. <laughs> but we all sleep and it's cool to be able to say, well, we can help you do that now. Sleep problems are more likely to affect patients with psychiatric disorders than people in the general population. Sleep problems may increase risk for developing particular mental illnesses as well as result from such disorders. And treating the sleep disorder may help alleviate symptoms of the mental health problem. That being said, today we're gonna just talk a little bit more about sleep and the do's and don'ts and how to get better sleep. This, this is not a judgment. I myself am a, very, I'm a very hypocritical sleep expert. I don't go to bed when I'm supposed to. Sometimes I sleep in, but the difference is I know what I'm doing and I can make it up and I can figure it out. But unfortunately for the rest of us, sleep education was not a part of how we grew up. Um, you, you learn about all of the other aspects of health outside of sleep. The important thing to know though is that your sleep is going to be good or bad based on two factors which are quality and quantity. Uh, the first thing that we need to understand is that we're not special when it comes to how much sleep we need. We've all heard that you need eight hours of sleep, right? You've at least heard it, you, don't, you probably don't do it, but we all, that's what we've been told. 
So the majority of the population, 90% actually, uh, do require eight hours of sleep to have sufficient rest. Most of us can survive on less. Most of us adapt to less. I, I hear frequently people say, oh, no, I only need six. Well, you need eight, but you have now adjusted to, to getting six hours of sleep. Uh, does anybody here commit to spending at least eight hours in bed to try to get eight hours of sleep? That's a higher percentage than usual. Two people raise their hands. Usually people will admit that they don't. So that's a start. If you are somebody who is feeling rested or who is not feeling rested, you should start with commit yourself to eight hours and see what happens. In fact, I'm going to give you all a one-week challenge. There are a few things that you're going to hear that I want you to do all these things for seven days. And if you don't feel better, then you can send me a nasty email. But you will, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> so that being said, these are the sleep needs for, for different people. Um, there are very rare people who are called short sleepers, which require less sleep, or long sleepers. I know, very clever names that require 10 hours or more. But the majority of us really do need eight hours of sleep. The variance in the sleep requirements for different age groups are they, starting with infancy, majority of the, the time needed is for development. And as we do age, it isn't even necessarily that you need less sleep, because there are a lot of people in the elder population who are tired all the time. And it's, it's not that they need less sleep, it's that they have a harder time achieving quality sleep. So they are spending less time even trying. So it is important to, to get you know seven, eight hours, no matter how old you are, it just does become more difficult as we age. Uh, and that's the majority of the, the issues that do develop as we age are tissue related. Uh, it's, it's difficult to, to breathe when your tissues loosen uh, and it causes sleep disruptions. So a lot of the older population do, does suffer from sleep disorders, but hopefully, you know, at least we're at a time where you can get the help you need with sleep studies and such. So focusing on the quality side of sleep, uh, there are a lot of things we can do to get better sleep. Um, does anybody here wake up around 2 or 3 and then have a hard time going back to sleep? That's very common right now. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we are kind of dealing with is blue light becoming a huge issue in our society. Um, blue light is the light that's emitted from phones and iPads and computers and everything else that shines brightly artificially at your face all day every day and it causes neurological issues as far as your sleep is concerned so again you're not you're not special it is a problem <laughs> and it is something that is causing those 2 a.m. arousals um, interestingly enough if you were to stop exposing yourself to blue light an hour or two prior to your attempted bedtime I think you would see that those arousals will stop happening so you can add that to your seven-day challenge Attempt to not use blue light prior to bedtime. Um, if you use your cell phone for an alarm clock like I do, set your alarm and then put your phone face down on your nightstand at least an arm's length away because if you can grab it, you're going to look at it. But if your alarm is not going off, you do not need to know what time it is. So you don't need to be looking at your phone. That exposure to your face, especially when you're already attempting to sleep and reinitiate sleep, is going to prevent you from doing it. Uh, blue light suppresses melatonin production as well as causes neurological confusion as far as what time of day it is. The other big factor is caffeine. And this is, again, this is not a judgment because I wake up every day, no, don't worry. <laughs> I have an iced vanilla latte every morning. Um, but caffeine consumption is, it works differently than most people 
think it does. People think they're consuming a form of energy when in reality it is an adenosine blocker. So adenosine is the hormone that is released to make you feel the physical effects of fatigue, uh, like the droopy eyes and the kind of the sluggishness, that's the presence of adenosine. So when you drink caffeine, it blocks the release of adenosine in your body. Um, so you're not actually consuming energy, you're just preventing yourself from feeling fatigued. Uh, that being said, when you go to bed, if you do have caffeine in your system, your body is tired and you are trying to fall asleep, but without that release of adenosine, it makes it very difficult. And people confuse that with having a racing mind or just worrying, not being able to turn their brains off. It could be the presence of either blue light or caffeine. So one more thing to tack onto your challenge. If you drink caffeine after 2 p.m., try not to. Try it for a week and see what happens. Um, if you do drink soda with dinner, uh, try LaCroix instead. Um, I think you're gonna be surprised how quickly it can positively impact your sleep. Other fun things to do are um, create healthy habits as far as your bedtime goes. I'm sure you've all heard, you know, go to bed at the same time every night. That's impossible if you want to have any fun in your life. I don't recommend it. I, it's, it's helpful if your sleep is the most important thing in your life, but ultimately we've got friends. We've got beer, we've got Netflix, we've got other things that are fun to do sometimes past 10 p.m. And that's okay, it's all just kind of about balance. Uh, but if you do create habits that you can do every night at bedtime, it is pretty simple to train your body to say, okay, that means it's time for bed. Uh, I personally use an eye mask every night, and every time I pull that thing over my face, I instantly start to feel sleepy. My body knows it is time. Also, it's great to keep any light out. I suggest eye masks for everybody um, because when I worked overnights, I would come home and it would be daytime and I'd have to have my blackout shades and all of that so I'd even be able to fall asleep. And now it's just really, it's wonderful. I recommend it to a lot of my clients and I get a lot of emails and feedback saying, hey, that, that was really cool. I would never have thought of that. And it's not a feminine thing, guys. You guys can use, use an eye mask too. The, the one I got was from Bed Bath & Beyond and it's got kind of a little like lip on the bottom to prevent anything coming from up. Yeah, there are some really nice ones, but also the $5 one at Target is better than nothing. Also things like decaffeinated tea, reading a book, having a bath, any kind of soothing, comforting thing you can do prior to bedtime is great. Yes, creating healthy habits. So there are also a lot of don'ts. The two that we've already discussed as far as caffeine and blue light, but also smoking is so bad for your sleep. Smoking is really bad in general. If you don't know that already, there's nothing I'm gonna say to convince you not to smoke. Um, also exercising, which is on the do list, it's actually not even on the don't list at nighttime, to be honest with you. If your only opportunity to work out is at night before bed, then the benefits will probably far outweigh the risks of how long it's gonna take you to sleep. Uh, but if it's possible, maybe try not to do it directly before bedtime. Um, other don'ts are alcohol. In a way, uh, one or two drinks is gonna help you fall asleep, but alcohol actually suppresses REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep that makes you feel rested. So the same way caffeine blocks adenosine, alcohol blocks REM. So I don't know if you've ever had those nights where you've had a lot to drink, I haven't. And then the next day you're very tired, even though you were in bed for 12 hours, it's because you didn't get the stage of sleep that makes you feel rested. So you have to wait till the alcohol's out of your system and then take a nap. But I did have an interesting question a few years ago. Somebody asked me if they could wear blue blockers to use their cell phone at night. Yeah, that's what And it's, it's different. No. Nope, it's a different light. It's a different frequency actually, which is why the old-fashioned blue blockers work on sunlight, but not blue light. Blue light's a lot faster and detrimental. <laughs> okay, so let's say you listen to all my tips and you try everything for a week and you're not feeling rested. 
it's possible you have a sleep disorder. Does anybody here know anybody with a sleep disorder? That's awesome. 10 years ago, I got nothing. That's really cool. So the three most common are insomnia, which is defined by difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep, restless leg syndrome, which is a creepy crawly feeling in your limbs that prevent you from falling asleep, and obstructive sleep apnea, which is when you stop breathing at night. For those of you who have raised your hands, um, is the disorder that you know about sleep apnea? 30% of the American population suffers from sleep apnea, and the majority of them are undiagnosed already, or still, and it's terrible. So we're gonna talk more about that, but real quick, I want you to look in front of you, and there are a few sheets of paper, two of them, will look like this, the Epworth Sleepiness Scale and the Stop Bang Questionnaire. If you guys don't mind, I want you to take a minute and fill these out. Um, the Epworth Sleepiness Scale is used to determine your likelihood of falling asleep in certain situations uh, that can be indicative of a sleep disorder. And the Stop Bang Questionnaire is to see your likelihood of having severe sleep apnea, which is incredibly dangerous as we will learn in a minute. So the Epworth, um, Again, if, if you do have a, a high number on there, I know it gives you the instructions, but if uh, your Epworth is over 10, then you should really consider looking into that because that is abnormal. And the stop bang, the same. <coughs> if you are likely to have obstructive sleep apnea, it would be very important for you to get that treated. So just to talk a little more about sleep apnea, because again, 30% of the population has it, uh, it is when you stop breathing at night, and that happens when the tissues in your throat collapse over your airway and stop you from getting oxygen. So an apnea has to be, by de definition, at least 10 seconds long, but I've seen them last over two minutes, which is a really difficult thing to watch somebody lay there and not breathe for two minutes. So once your apnea is over, your brain will trigger um, you to wake up. It might not be something that you notice, the arousal or the awakening, but it will still happen physiologically and your tissues will float back up and you'll take a breath and start to get oxygen. Now, the apnea hypopnea index, which is how many times per hour this happens to you for people with severe sleep apnea, I've seen over 100. And if you think about laying there trying to get a, a breath over 100 times an hour, you're not breathing more than you're breathing. And for a lot of different reasons, that's very dangerous. The main one being what it does to your heart. Because every time you have an apnea, your heart basically starts to beat overtime. If it beats at this normal rhythm, when you don't take in new oxygen, your brain says, okay, we're not taking in air, this is a problem. Your heart starts to kick into overdrive to continue circulating the already oxygenated blood in your body since you're not getting more oxygen. You're using what you have. Now hearts are meant to last over 100 years, but there are different factors that cause them to fail early. Sometimes it's genetics or, or some kind of physiological issue with the actual functionality of the heart, but a lot of times it's something else like stress or plaque or McDonald's or sleep apnea that's causing your heart to work in a way that it's not meant to. That being said, every time I hear a story of somebody young who was, oh, he was only 40 years old and he was a marathon runner and he was so healthy and he dropped out of a heart attack, I think untreated sleep apnea because you can be as healthy as you want during the day, but if your heart is forced to work overtime all night, every night, that's a third of your life. It's gonna cause damage, it's gonna cause it to fail. Um, it also causes strokes. Uh, have you ever heard of, well, with carbon dioxide retention, it's dangerous, carbon dioxide is poison and every time you don't exhale you're you're keeping it in your body and it's supposed to be out so that is something that causes incredible damage it also 
can cause obesity or obesity can be caused by sleep apnea. Uh, same with the connection with diabetes. All, all, everything that is bad can happen because of bad sleep. And also be treated when it's, when it's treatable. So, real quick, does anybody have anybody in their family or anybody present with sleep apnea? If you have a family member who has it, you are more likely to have it. And if you know of, one more question. Does anybody know if their family member or themselves use a CPAP machine? Awesome, okay, good. That makes me so happy, you guys. You have no idea how <laughs> much this has progressed. I mean, even CPAP machines 20 years ago were this big and they had to sit on your floor. It wouldn't fit on your nightstand. So that's just, that's wonderful. So sleep apnea is bad if you are on this scale anywhere, then you should go and get a sleep study. Here's a question, Sarah. Can you talk about the surgeries people can get so they don't have to wear the CPAP machines? So there are probably two things that you're referencing, either a UPPP, which is a uvular, uvular, I can never say it, palatal pharyngeal plasty, which they take everything out. They take out all of the tissues in the back of your throat. The problem with that is not only is it incredibly painful, I've heard that it's next to childbirth, um, it is not necessarily effective because when they remove all of the fatty tissue to help you breathe, they're replacing it with scar tissue from all of the, the cutting and it actually is harder tissue to move out of the way with a CPAP machine. So a lot of people suffer in a lot of pain to not have that corrected from that surgery. I would never recommend it. I think it was some money-making scheme back in the 80s. Uh, the other one is the Inspire, which is an implantable device that sends electric shocks to your tissues to move out of the way during the night. Yes, you should look horrified. I, it's a terrible thing. Um, it has helped a very small percentage of the population who do suffer from sleep apnea, uh, but even to, to get into the trials of being considered for it, there are a lot of kind of qualifications. You have to be of a certain age, you have to have a certain AHI, you can't have too many apneas or too little, or there's just kind of a lot of hoops to go through. It was actually a part of the research trials when they were doing uh, the experiments on patients before it got FDA approval, which was interesting. You know, they'd come into the lab and we wouldn't do anything to them, just let them sleep and see if the thing was working. And it just looked terrible. Every once in a while you'd see them go, it's like, I, would, I don't know, it just seems like a really extreme option. But there are some people who really just can't tolerate CPAP and you know, are willing to go to those extremes. And that's fine, that's not a judgment. <laughs> just, I believe a big part of the reason it is effective is because you're, the AHI requirement, I don't know that anybody with severe sleep apnea who stopped breathing over and over and over again would have that be completely effective. I think if maybe there's some minor apnea or depending on the, the consistency of your tissues, you know, you never know, it could help some people. So there are actually two kinds of apnea. Central sleep apnea is a neurological disorder, and that is when your brain isn't sending the signal to your body to breathe. So people will have these apneas over and over. Eventually, your body will wake up to take that breath, but you're not having the signal being sent. Um, obstructive is because of, of tissues in the airway, and it's not necessarily just the tissues right over your throat. Sometimes it's a pinched nasal passage that prevents um, good airflow, and it can be any kind of tissues anywhere kind of in the, in the system. So it's not necessarily caused by fatty tissue. There is a stereotype of a, a person with sleep apnea and it's always an old chubby guy, which is not the case. Anybody can have apnea. And a, another reason for that is the size of your airway. Um, I had a patient, she was 19 years old and she was a marathon runner. She was a track star in her college and she thought she had narcolepsy because she couldn't stay awake. She was always so tired. 
and she had severe sleep apnea because she was just this tiny bitty little thing, 80 pounds soaking wet. Uh, and as soon as she fell asleep, her tiny little airway went boop. It didn't take much because she just anatomically didn't have the support to hold her, her throat open to breathe. So she got put on CPAP that night and that was a life changer for her, which is amazing. So it can be for a few different reasons that you do develop it, but um, luckily there's treatment. So if you do suspect that you have a sleep disorder, you should have a sleep study. Anybody had one? Cool. Um, when you go in to get your sleep study or a polysomnogram, there will be a very nice person, much like myself in scrubs, who will show you to your room and set you up with a bunch of wires. Then you are gonna go to sleep and have them assess what's going on. So a lot of people say, oh, I don't wanna do that or I don't wanna stay overnight. Sleep labs these days are amazing. They're better than hotels. Everybody has sleep number beds, flat screen TVs, free snacks, no kids, you get the remote to yourself. It's awesome, you just, it's like going to a hotel. I've had people say they've had better sleep at their sleep study just because they were alone. They didn't have kids bothering them or they, you know, things to worry about, laundry at home. Um, and it's a very painless procedure. Uh, the worst that they do is scrub your skin a little to put electrodes on. Uh, so if you do have a sleep disorder, uh, you'll get your sleep study and it's gonna be great. And if you do have sleep apnea, they come in the middle of the night and put a little CPAP machine on you. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And it's just a little mask that either goes over your nose or your nose and mouth. Um, the actual machine is about just bigger than a Kleenex box and it sits on your nightstand and it just uses room air, not even oxygenated air, it's just room air, to blow into your airway and hold your tissues up because as your tissues attempt to fall over and cause an apnea, this air pressure from the CPAP prevents it. So your airway stays open the way it's supposed to. Uh, CPAP, I don't even really know how to tell you how amazing CPAP is. I had a patient, I've had a lot of patients, I worked for years in the, in the sleep lab and I still see people all over the city sometimes and they're like, hey, you did my sleep study and they tell me the stories of how well they're doing now and that's wonderful. But I had one man, he was in his 70s and he was a Vietnam veteran and he had a big bushy mustache beard. He was very crabby, which was understandable because most people who come into the sleep lab are crabby because they're tired and I understand that. Uh, and he didn't want to be there at all. He said, my wife made me come. I don't have any problems, this and this and that. I knew he had severe sleep apnea just looking at his jaw structure. So I said, this is probably gonna be a rough night for you because I'm gonna come in and put this machine on you in the middle of the night. Oh, don't do it, don't even try it, I just wanna sleep. I said, okay, go to bed. So he went to bed and of course he didn't breathe at all. I had to suffer through this for two hours for insurance purposes. And then after two hours of sleep, I got to go in and tick him off and say, all right, I gotta put this machine on you. And he said, no, I don't want to. And I sat down and I said, I'm gonna tell you honestly, the only time I saw you smile throughout the evening was when you talked about your grandkids. And he said, so? I said, so, do you wanna see him graduate? Do you wanna see him walk down the aisle? It's up to you. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, all right, I'll try it. <laughs> so I put it on his face, the little nasal mask, and he went back to sleep. So of course, as soon as he fell to sleep, his mouth opened up and all the air rushes out of your mouth. So I went back in, gotta put this out, a different mask on, one that covers the nose and the mouth. Fine, so I put it on him, he fell asleep. All the air was blowing out because his beard was so big, it was leaking everywhere and the mask needs to seal so you can get the air. So I said, how attached to your beard are you? And he said, my wife will kill you. I said, we've come this far, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're doing so great. 
he said, all right, let's do it. So I got the little, you know, the hospital razors that are only one blade, and just hacking away at this giant beard. It was really gross, actually. Finally got the mask on his face, and it's sealed. And I said, all right, good luck. Go to sleep. He slept straight for four hours, didn't even move, went into REM rebound, because one of the things that happens when you have apnea is that you, your body doesn't allow you to go into REM as much as you need to because the apnea is worse and your oxygen levels drop lower. And uh, he slept in REM for four hours, and then I said, oh, it's 7 a.m., you gotta go home. And I took the mask off, which is always really great morning breath, P.S., after the first night on CPAP. And he just sat on the edge of the bed for a minute, and he started bawling, just full body heaves. He's crying so hard, and I didn't know what to do, so I sat down next to him, and I pat his back and just let him cry. He cried for 20 minutes, and he finally got a hold of himself and was like, I'm so sorry. I just didn't know I could feel this way. I haven't felt like this since I was a teenager. And he just said he felt... He, he couldn't wrap his mind around how that ho was how he was supposed to feel. And that's why sleep medicine is so amazing, because we do adapt. We, we can function as tired people, and it's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be able to feel great. Fatigue is our body's way of telling us something is wrong. The same way we feel pain when you break your arm, that's your body's saying something is wrong. Fatigue is saying something's wrong with your sleep. You're not getting enough. We're not supposed to feel that way. So he was... He is a person that I will never forget. And I sometimes think about him when I see older gentlemen with freshly shaved beards and wonder <laughs> how they're doing. Um, so yes, CPAP, a lot of people say, I don't wanna wear that thing all night. But if you do need it, if your doctor said to you, you have a disorder and I need you to wear this little mask all day, every day as you walk around, if you would like to continue living, would you think about it? Would you say, fine, I'll wear the mask. It's gonna stink. But that's what you have to do to, to stay healthy. Okay, fine, let's do it. So why wouldn't you do it at night when it's less time, one person's gonna see you, it's really not that big of a deal. Plus, you're gonna feel amazing if you have sleep apnea and then you, you get your CPAP. The straps, the CPAP masks, all of the, the headgear, everything now, there are thousands of options. So they've kind of gotten it to the point where there is something that's going to be comfortable for you, we just have to find it which is cool because if you work with your DME or your dur durable medical equipment people, they'll have all the different options if you just want to commit an hour to finding something that is comfortable. Also, I have a lot in my trunk if you need any. <laughs> there's, there's no cure, but there is treatment. So it, again, with the UPPP, taking everything out is not, it's not a cure and it's not effective. Uh, CPAP can treat it, but it doesn't actually go away. The only instances where it does disappear is if there, if a patient is morbidly obese um, and then loses a lot of weight. A lot of times they lose kind of fat content on the tissues in their airway as well. So once those tissues lose weight they're and they're able to breathe more freely, their apnea can either get better or actually disappear. I've seen people go off of CPAP after massive weight loss. But for most of us, it's a combo of the size of the airway and just the structure with the tissues and you'll probably be wearing CPAP forever, but it'll be okay because you'll feel great and you won't care. Sarah, what do you think about the machines that clean your CPAP supplies? I think they're wonderful. Uh, the so clean, yeah, you can put the whole the hose, the mask, the headgear, everything right into the so clean, and it kind of it just it disinfects and cleans it, which is great, especially if you are a person who tends to get sick easier or have a compromised immune system. They're kind of expensive. I think they're two hundred dollars, but I think it's worth it, especially when you consider the time and effort put in. You have to put into cleaning this stuff anyway. You you might as well just have have something to it for you. Are sleep studies normally covered by insurance? 
Absolutely. Um, we're actually working on having them be considered preventative procedures because they do prevent everything. <laughs> I think the lowest I've seen is 80% coverage for the study and the equipment. Um, most do cover more with, depending on your co-pays with your insurance company and everything. Um, and also, if you are going to get a sleep study, I would recommend working with an independent lab. This is just me being biased after my years of working in sleep medicine. Uh, it's a pretty small field, I, and I know everybody in the state. And I will say that independent labs versus hospital systems just tend to give higher quality care because hospital systems are able to feed patients into the sleep lab through the, their actual system, whereas independent labs having to get patients on their own are really very high quality based. You have to be good to survive in a, in a hospital world. I really like Lakeland Sleep Centers. They are, um, and I'm not getting paid for this, <laughs> they're great and there's a few locations throughout the city. A lot of my former students work there too, so you know they were trained by the best. <laughs> Lakeland? Lakeland, yes, L-A-K-E-L-A-N-D, yeah. We've got, actually this is the Q&A time now. That's, <laughs> I want you to open up and ask whatever questions you like. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between obstructive sleep apnea and obesity? There are two hormones called leptin and ghrelin, and leptin and ghrelin are used in the ability to burn calories and appetite control. Both of these are regulated during sleep. So if you are not getting sufficient sleep, and it is interesting because apnea can cause obesity or obesity can cause apnea. It is just kind of a, an interesting cycle. Addressing one or the other is just gonna, it, it's gonna be individualized. So if you're not getting sufficient sleep with sleep apnea, you continue waking up to take breaths. So not only are you not getting the uh, quantity of sleep, the actual hours that you need, but you're not getting into the right stages at the right time to, to be able to feel rested. So the release of leptin, which is going to make you be able to store calories where you're supposed to and also burn them when you are exerting energy, you need to have that at certain levels at certain points in your night. So with sleep apnea, you're already going to be waking up kind of behind without all of that leptin. Same with ghrelin, which is the opposite. It needs to be worn off. And if you're not getting sufficient sleep, it doesn't have enough time to wear off. And ghrelin is appetite control. So I don't know if you've ever gotten a really bad night of sleep when you wake up and you're hungry for kind of bad food. Um, when you are sleeping the way you're supposed to, it's easier for you to eat healthier because it's what your body is craving. So that being said, insufficient sleep caused by sleep apnea can kind of set you up for failure as far as starting to gain more weight because you're eating worse foods and you're not storing or you're not burning calories the way you're supposed to. So people will start to gain weight and it if their sleep isn't good it doesn't really matter what they do. They it can be gosh I'm working out all the time. I don't know why I'm conti continuing to gain weight. And it is kind of sad because until they get that sleep study and develop that treatment procedure, it's not really going to matter. On the other end, if you are obese and you do develop sleep apnea because the tissues become more fatty and you're not able to breathe, again, getting it treated, you're, even if you don't do anything, if you are obese and you start to wear a CPAP, you're going to start to lose weight because you're gonna be able to burn calories when you do exert energy because you're getting the sufficient sleep that you need. So I've seen people just go on CPAP and come back for their new mask six weeks later. I haven't worked out once, I lost 30 pounds. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. Can you talk more about REM rebound and the stages of sleep? Absolutely, so there are four stages of sleep, including, or, and also wakefulness, which is considered a stage of sleep. I forgot to repeat the question, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, 
REM rebound is different than regular sleep. The first stage of sleep is stage one, and that's considered the transitional stage of sleep. You go from wakefulness into stage one, and then the other stages. Stage two is where we spend 50% of our night. Um, stage three slash four, which are now combined, it's considered deep sleep or slow wave sleep, and then REM. So when you are in REM, your muscles become paralyzed. Everything except your, your brain, heart, lungs, diaphragm, everything that still keeps you going is fine, but your muscular system, there are actually hormones that are secreted to paralyze you. Have you ever woken up and you couldn't move, literally? It's terrifying, it's called sleep paralysis, and that's when you are able to have an arousal before that hormone wears off and, and you are paralyzed. That being said, it is a contributing factor to why REM sleep causes worse sleep apnea because when you don't have that extra muscular system to help you take these breaths, it is more difficult to get air. Um, so we are supposed to cycle into REM sleep uh, for 20% of our night, and the majority of it is from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. You do cycle in for five, 10 minutes at a time earlier out in the night, but the, the majority of it is at the end of the night. And with REM rebound, you are able to just sleep in REM without continuing to cycle in and out. And that's what happens when your body says, okay, I'm breathing the way I'm supposed to, I'm sleeping the way I'm supposed to, it's safe for me to get this REM, so I'm going to get it so I can heal. In which stage do we dream? That's in, yep, that's in REM. Rapid eye movement. Is that the alpha? Nope, alpha is actually a stage of wakefulness. So when you see the alpha brainwave, beta is del uh, slow wave sleep, stage three slash four. Uh, alpha is when you are lying awake with your eyes closed. That's the brainwave you see is alpha. That's really helpful for people who like to lie and say they're sleeping in the sleep study. I can see that you're not. <laughs> Gotta try. What is your opinion of different medications to help people sleep? So I have a lot of opinions on sleep medication. Mostly it comes down to use them. <laughs> Melatonin is widely misused because it should be taken two hours to attempted prior, prior to attempted sleep initiation. If you want to go to bed at 10, you should take your melatonin at 8. And all of the bottles say half an hour, which makes me wonder if, it, if there is a lot of placebo effect happening. Because the time release of melatonin production in your body, if you do take melatonin, take it two hours. You don't want to mess with your circadian rhythms too much because then you're just going to have more issues as you age. Any other sleep aid, if you are having issues sleeping, take them. I don't know why people are concerned with being addicted to sleep pills because if you're not, I mean, they're causing you to sleep. Also, they're so much more sophisticated than they used to be. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard stories of Ambien and the things that people would do when it was first created. The funniest ones that we've seen are people eating, I don't know why it's always a frozen pizza, a frozen pizza from the freezer on Ambien and coming out in the morning and seeing it on the counter with big bite marks out of it. They didn't even try to cook it. It was just, let's get the pizza and go back to bed. They're much better now. Uh, they're much more mild and they're more uh, individualized. For example, Lunesta came out with these neat time release ones, uh, like the four hour and the eight hour. So for people who have a difficult time just initiating sleep, They'll take the Lunesta, it will help them fall asleep, but then it wears off prior to when they have to get up and go to work. And then there are, it's the other way, if you have no problem falling asleep and staying asleep, then the time release can help you from the other end of the night. That being said, it is great to have a sleep study and make sure you don't have a sleep disorder that's actually causing the real issue. If, you, if it really is just, my mind is racing or I have pain or there are things that aren't going to be 
uh, treated from a sleep lab, then absolutely take the pills and get a better night's sleep because you're going to have you're going to do more damage when you build up sleep deprivation versus taking the pill and getting some rest. In my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about shift work and people working odd hours? It's really difficult because even if you are on a set shift work schedule, it's just really unnatural. Our circadian rhythms are not meant to be working at night. Um, there are things that you can do to help ease the pain, but you're never going to not be tired. Uh, I've, I haven't worked overnight in years and I still feel the effects. I never know what day it is. I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> so that being said, blue block blockers are great for your drive home if you're leaving in the sunlight. Um, I do suggest anything you can do to avoid more light exposure because it's just going to give you a harder time falling asleep when you're finally able to. And I would also recommend um, having a, a physical habit that you do before initiating sleep, like pulling down the eye mask and having that one thing that it doesn't matter if it is a day that you're on shift work or a day that you're not to be able to have that trained behavior for your body. And always um, pull over on the side of the road if you're driving and you feel sleepy. It's, it's so bad. I did a uh, little experiment with CARE 11 a few years ago. They brought me and a med student and a paramedic student to a sleep lab and kept us up all night and then brought us to a closed driving course the next day. Uh, my driving time was 2 p.m., which everybody's at, tired at 2 p.m. because that's when our circadian rhythms dip. And at that point, I'd been up for over 30 hours. And they put me behind the wheel with a sheriff in one of the cars that they use for driving with kids so that you can brake. So we were safe enough if I kind of got out of control. And I pulled up to the stoplight. I don't even remember it. I felt, I remember feeling like I was drunk. I was, I, everything was funny. I didn't know what was happening. And we pulled up to this fake little light and they have me on tape. I was so excited when the report came out. I was like, I'm gonna be on TV. Okay, Sarah's got wires all over in her hair, giggling like a little girl. And I pulled up to the light and just went. Everybody was calling me and texting me, you're on the news, turn it off, turn it off. I look ridiculous, but it proved a point. I did it because I wanted to show people it is like driving drunk. Nine out of 10 people who are pulled over for drunk driving are sleepy. It's so dangerous, it really is. So, PSA over, <laughs> yes. Would you recommend adjustable beds? Yes, I think, yep. Um, if you are, if your sleep issues are comfort related, then I think that, that that can be a really great addition to your bedroom. The adjustable beds that raise your head to the point where your tissues will drop and prevent having apnea aren't great, but if you've already ruled out sleep apnea and you're just more comfortable that way, then absolutely. And same with pillows. I don't I don't understand the my pillow hype, but I have a, a Tempur-Pedic pillow that I love, and I have a sleep number bed that's adjustable. And I think it's really worth investing money in having comfortable sleep because you, again, you do it a third of your life. I, since I got all my comfortable stuff, it's really 50/50 as to whether I'm going to hang out with you or if I'm just going to go to bed. It's wonderful. <laughs> Where can we find the blue light glasses? You can get them online. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I know Bed Bath & Beyond also has a lot. They have a great sleep section. They have a lot of really ne neat things for helping you sleep. But uh, yeah, you just grab them on Amazon. Can you talk about what sorts of things can help people specifically who are living with mental illnesses? Yeah, a lot of medications have a negative impact on our sleep. So if you have mental illness, if, this is some, if there is treatment, if you're using certain medications, I think it's really important to research how it does interact with your sleep. Uh, there are 
too many to go through and say this is going to do this or this will do that. But again, we're hey, we're in a library. We're in the age of information. You can definitely uh, find out and see if uh, something you're taking is having a negative impact on your sleep, and if that is the case, to maybe try a new combination. Because again, with that correlation, if you're not getting sufficient sleep, you're not going to be able to feel better or to be better. So it is definitely something that should be prioritized as far as looking into new combos. I am 100% a fan of do what you have to do, especially when it comes to sleep. Uh, the problem with melatonin is that because it is a naturally occurring hormone, it's, it's conceived as a natural supplement, but it's not. The melatonin you're taking was made in a lab, so there is possible interaction issues with other medications to be looked at, but again, if it's a, a safe combination and if it's gonna help you sleep, do it. Jet lag is interesting. I can't remember if it's east or west. So you only get jet lag when you travel one direction. The feeling of jet lag and being able to adjust time zone wise is gonna be individualized based on your how long you're traveling, how long you're gonna be gone, and really kind of the implications of, or the repercussions of what will happen when you return home. My suggestions for dealing with jet lag are to sleep until you feel comfortable getting back on a regular schedule. For a lot of us, that's not possible, and you just, you're just you gonna have to suffer through until you're able to get sufficient sleep, but you'll know when you do because you'll stop feeling tired. Unfortunately, with sleep deprivation, though, um, it is kind of like a, it's like a bank. Have, have you guys heard the term sleep debt? It is controversial in the sleep world because some people believe in it and some don't, but I personally not only do, but believe the researchers that have definitively stated it is a real thing. You can make up your sleep if you go into sleep debt. So let's say you don't get eight hours one night, you only get six because the baby woke up crying, you now have two hours of sleep debt to make up. You can take a two hour nap the next day, you can go to bed half an hour earlier and sleep in half an hour later, but do what you have to do to try to stay around eight hours per night or day. Uh, because if you don't, one of the first things that will happen is your immune system becomes compromised. I don't know if you've ever noticed when you're really tired that it's easier for you to get sick that's because your immune system can't fight off uh, the germs and bacteria that it usually can when it's rested. Uh, so that is the biggest concern as far as jet lag goes for me is that when you do suffer and if it does take you too long to be able to correct it, that you're probably gonna get sick. So it's good to pay attention to. No more questions? Can we give Sarah a round of applause? Cool, thanks guys. NAMI Minnesota, champions justice, dignity, and respect for all people affected by mental illnesses. Through education, support, and advocacy, we strive to eliminate the pervasive stigma of mental illnesses, affect positive changes in the mental health system, and increase the public and professional understanding of mental illnesses. NAMI Minnesota vigorously promotes the development of community mental health programs and services, improved access to services, and increased opportunities for recovery. Call us at 651-645-2948 or email namihelps at namimn.org. NAMI Minnesota's website is namihelps.org. Outside of Minnesota, visit nami.org to find your state NAMI organization.